This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cash back really adds up. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Palantir Technologies. Foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. I just hosted a conversation at the Michael V. Hayden Center at George Mason University on China. Our guests were Harvard's Graham Allison, Johns Hopkins' Hal Brands, and George Mason's Ketian Zhang. We'll be right back with that conversation. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. All three of you have thought about and written extensively on China, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. The three of you know, the audience doesn't know, but the three of you know that I want to ask five basic but very strategic questions, see where we get similar views and see where we get differences of opinion. We will rotate uh, who gets to go first as we uh, go through the questions. For the first three questions, one of our panelists will take the lead with the other two commenting with a bit more time for the person in the lead. And for the last two questions, everyone will get equal time. So I want to kick it off here with the first question, which is, what are China's ambitions in the world and what is the source of those ambitions? In other words, what does China want the world order to look like and what is behind that desire? Graham, we're going to start with this one. So thank you, Michael. And let me say thank you to the other members of the panel and especially to Mike Hayden. What a great honor to be part of the whole discussion. So your question about China's ambitions, I would say could hardly be clearer in one line. What Xi's China wants is to make China great again. Now, that banner he unfurled when he became president almost five years before Trump had his analog about making America great again. So from a Chinese perspective, 
for Xi and his team. They imagine China in the 21st century becoming as powerful and influential as America was in the 20th century. If the 20th century was an American century, as we often describe it, they imagine the 21st century as China's century. What's the source of this ambition? I would say three, geopolitical, cultural, and ideological. The most powerful is geopolitical. They bear the scars of what they call the century of humiliation, and they're determined that China should be so powerful that never again, and they say never again, could it be humiliated, imperialized, exploited the way it was by Westerners with technology in the previous centuries. Secondly, culturally, China in Mandarin means center of the universe between heaven and earth. So Chinese culturally and historically imagine China as the sun around which all other planets, all other countries revolve. So the proposition that China should be restored to, quote, its rightful place at the center of the universe resonates for Chinese. Thirdly, ideologically, they want to show that a party-led autocracy practicing what she calls socialism with Chinese characteristics can govern more successfully than Western models. So in sum, Xi is serious about making China great again. He's on that path at a very uh, rapid upward slope. And he believes that, as he says, China is inexorably rising and the U.S. irreversibly declining. Katian, can you uh, can you comment? First off, um, it's really an, an honor uh, to be part of this um, uh, conversation, um, and um, I'll be just very brief. And I agree with um, with Graham that um, obviously China has ambitions um, that's more external, including sort of having the status as the rising power, as well as exerting influence uh, around the globe. But I also wanted to scale back sort of the conversation a little bit to sort of emphasize that a lot of China's um, uh, core concerns are still relatively a internal as well as be close to um, its sort of um, a region, especially in regard to East um, Asia and Southeast Asia. So China does want an, a stable external environment for its economic growth, as well as um, its uh, sovereignty, including Taiwan and Tibet being its core uh, interests. Um, so I would say its ambitions are there, but it's relatively um, limited and the sort of source behind the um, ambition or uh, the sources for China's concerns, I would say, uh, is really internal. That is the regime security of the Chinese Communist Party, and, and I believe that sort of a rational calculation is at the core of um, the Chinese Communist Party's um, decision making. Yeah. I agree with much of what uh, my co-panelists have said. The way I think about it is that you can conceive of China's interests or goals making up four concentric circles of progressively greater ambition as you move outward. And at the center is preserving the rule and the political monopoly of the Chinese Communist Party, which is really at the center of everything the regime does. Uh, But that doesn't mean it has limited geopolitical goals. Its geopolitical goals are quite expansive. I think the second concentric circle might be thought of as making China whole again, basically reclaiming or claiming pieces of China that Xi Jinping and other Chinese officials 
argue are integral parts of China, whether that's Taiwan or uh, the Nine Dash Line at the South China Sea or other things, but that actually have pretty disruptive regional implications. And that leads to the third concentric circle, which has sometimes been referred to as Asia for Asians. And so, so basically a regional sphere of influence in which China is dominant because the United States has been kicked to the margins. And then I think the fourth uh, circle is, is probably the most contentious one. And this may go to what Graham was saying about make China great, great again. I think at the very least, it's clear that the, the Chinese Communist Party is aiming to give China global parity with the United States by 2035 or 2050 or whatever the timeline is, perhaps even global primacy, perhaps even becoming the most powerful country in the world, which, as our panelists have noted, is, is sort of the, the historical norm which China sees itself occupying. It's only in the past 150 years that China has really been a second or a third tier power in the world. Great. Second question. Does China have a well-developed strategy for achieving its ambition? And if so, what is it? And, and importantly, is Xi Jinping's approach to domestic politics and the greater grip on power that he is exhibiting and the reversal of economic reforms, is that putting this strategy, this ambition at any risk? Katyn, let's start with you. So I, I will first sort of um, reiterate how I read uh, China's sort of, um, I, I think you're asking China's sort of overall grand strategy in terms of needs and ends and whether the current strategy um, in terms of means is actually successful uh, in the long term. So the first part of the question, I think I'll sort of characterize China's main goals as, for example, ensuring at region security, economic growth and sovereignty. And in order to uh, achieve these um, uh, goals, um, I think China is sort of using a carrots and sticks strategy in combination. Um, by carrots, I really mean um, a combination of the use of, say, economic statecraft with I think the BRI or Belt and Road Initiative being one example of it, um, as well as um, diplomatic uh, sort of uh, uh, statecraft. But um, I think as of now, we're increasingly uh, seeing um, China using those sticks as well, uh, including coercive measures. Um, I think in particular, um, the use of um, um, economic coercion or uh, diplomatic coercion, as well as a gray zone coercion, which often manifests itself in South and East uh, China Sea uh, disputes that, that China actually um, has. Um, so when it comes to sort of the effectiveness of this uh, carrots and stick strategy, I, I would say uh, it, it's, it, it might be effective in the short term, but sort of the growing use of these coercive measures might be ineffective in uh, the long term. But it also demonstrates there is a tension in China's overall goals. So on one hand, China wants to ensure a stable external environment for its economic growth, so there needs to be carrots, i.e. Um, sort of positive means of statecraft. But on the other hand, China wants to signal resolve to ensure some, um, a territorial sovereignty and integrity of it, uh, which uh, means that China will need to use uh, coercive actions. I would say two sets of goals are in tension with one another, which I think inherently limits the effectiveness of China's sort of, um, long-term uh, goals in order to keep them hand-in-hand, uh, uh, hand, um, which means that I don't think that this is sort of a sustainable grand strategy in, in the long term, but at the same time, because the goals that China has uh, in the first place um, are in tension with one another. So it's really difficult to see um, uh, the potential effect of this in uh, the future. And as for Xi's domestic politics, and I think this reflects the, the tension in China's overall uh, goals and, and China, where she has been increasing sort of that repressive capacity domestically and including scaling back some of the um, economic, economic reforms, which I believe um, might be 
uh, might not be conducive to the sustainability of China's overall uh, growth in the future. But at the same time, um, there might be some indications that she is aware of the, the issue with scaling back economic reforms. And he's been sort of emphasizing China being open um, again in more of the recent um, uh, remarks. So I think it remains to be seen um, uh, whether he's going to be changing the direction yeah. or not. So, Hal, how do you think about the second question? So I, I think that the goals of China's grand strategy, which we all discussed in one way or another in the first segment, have remained relatively constant over time. It's China's approach to achieving them that has shifted. And so for about 30 years after the beginning of the reform and opening period under Deng Xiaoping, the, the strategy was essentially one of those commonly characterized as hide your capabilities and bide your time. Basically, don't, don't give other countries, particularly the United States, any pretext to prematurely gang up on China, limit its economic growth, limit its accumulation of economic uh, and other forms of power on the international stage. And I think looking back, we would have to say that that was one of the most successful grand strategies in history. If you look not simply at the trajectory of China's growth from the late 70s to, to the early 2000s, but the way in which that growth, the way in which the emergence of a really formidable rival was actually assisted uh, and facilitated by the United States and Japan and other countries that had a great deal to lose from that emergence. It's really quite an impressive performance. I think that strategy, however, started to change really around 2008, 2009. It dates back, it predates Xi. It goes back to the financial crisis. There's a debate over whether uh, the financial crisis made China overconfident or made it insecure or some mixture of the two. But, but since then, uh, and particularly since Xi Jinping announced his striving for achievement motto in, in 2012, I believe it was, you've seen a China that is much more willing to act coercively, to act abrasively, and to actually incur the hostility of the United States. And that's gone into overdrive in the past year and a half during COVID. And this brings me to the second part of your question. I, I think Xi Jinping is actually doing grave damage to China's grand strategy in real time. If you look at the way that global views of China have soured over the past 18 months, if you ask the question, is the world more conducive to China's continued rise now than it was five years ago or now than it was 10 years ago, I think it gives you a pretty stark picture uh, of how much more concerned the world is about China as a disruptive actor than it once was. And when you add that to the ways in which she's uh, political centralization is probably undercutting the prospects for future economic reform, I think the damage could be quite severe. Let me just footstop your point, Hal, about the change in approach beginning before Xi, because I think a lot of people, when they talk about this, you know, put this fully with Xi, and it really began under Hu Jintao. That's absolutely right. Graham, how do you think about this question? Well, that's a deep question. Let me just uh, try to be brief. I'd say I largely agree, but somewhat disagree with what's been said. I would say that on the first proposition, uh, she puts the home front first. So this is mainly about making China successful. I actually have a chapter in my book on this called What She China Wants. And I describe in detail four revolutions that he's running simultaneously. First, he's revalidating the party as the vanguard in the leadership of the Chinese people. Second, he's reviving Chinese nationalism and patriotism to make Chinese proud of being Chinese again. Third, he's re-engineering an economic revolution 
to try to sustain unsustainably high levels of economic growth. And finally, he's rebuilding a military that, in his words, he says, can fight and win. Doing any one of these would be an amazing thing to be trying to do in any society. Four at one time is huge. He believes he needs to do all of these at the same time. He laid these out very carefully with actually benchmarks, target dates, KPIs, people responsible for them. So this is not simply an abstract strategy. This is a specific plan of action. And you can watch and see what he's doing and see how close it comes to this marker. Uh, Internationally, well, I think in terms of his international strategy, it's first make China everything it can be powerfully economically at home in the first instance. So China today has about one quarter of the U.S. per capita GDP. He doesn't see any reason why by 2035, and this is target, should be half the U.S. GDP. And by 2049, the 100th anniversary, should be equal to the U.S. Well, with four times as many people, we don't have to work very hard with the arithmetic to see how big the GDP would be relative to the U.S., and all the other dimensions of power follow, in his perspective, from that substructure. Secondly, the international component of this is to make China the indispensable economic relationship for every major economy. Today, China is the major trading partner of 130 countries, including all of the big ones. So basically, China's, as Lee Kuan Yew explained, a geoeconomics rather than the military security Uh, emphasis that the U.S. has given in the recent period. I think that's the strategy, and I would say pretty much on course. In terms of the recent course corrections, I think he and his team think about this as a work in progress with experiments. But the fact that they believe in socialism, maybe even more than Bernie Sanders, shouldn't be surprised. These are socialists. Therefore, they believe in redistribution of income. They believe in knocking down the billionaires and letting the millionaires have a chance. And these are very popular moves. Their anti-corruption campaign has been extremely popular in China. The moves against the billionaires have been extremely popular in China. So have they made some missteps? Yes. Do they risk strangling some of the the geese that have been laying the golden eggs? Yes, they do. Uh, They're intent on party control of everything, but I would say pretty much steady on course. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion on China. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, so this brings us to what I think is a very important question which is, in what ways does this matter to the United States of America? I think when people talk about this, you get a lot of vagueness. And so I'm going to push you guys to be specific. Does China reaching its ambitions, does China achieving the world order that it wants to achieve, right? does that lower our standard of living below what it would otherwise be? Does that put our privacy and civil liberties at risk here any more than they would be 
without China reaching its ambitions? Is the world a less stable place? In what ways does this really matter to the United States? In what way is this a threat and or challenge? How? So I, I think this is the central question. And as you indicated, it's also the most elided question and discussions of, of China. And let, let's leave aside for a moment the question of uh, the possibility of a war between the United States and China, which, which is possible and would obviously have directly disruptive effects for the United States. Um, but put that aside for a second. So I, I think that if you're thinking about the challenge that China poses to the United States, you should think about it geopolitically, economically, and, and ideologically. And so geopolitically, uh, the United States for about 125 years has said that we have a vital national interest in preventing any other power, particularly a hostile power, particularly an authoritarian power, from dominating a region of the world that we think is essential to our own security and prosperity. And we've typically defined those regions outside the Western Hemisphere as Europe, East Asia, uh, and after 1945, the, the Middle East. And what we worry about is that if a country, you know, whether it was Japan in the 1930s and early 1940s, uh, or the Soviet Union or China today, came to dominate one of the world's critical regions, it would become so strong that it could potentially coerce other countries on a global scale, uh, and that, that it would be able to basically displace the United States as the world's leading power and, and potentially could develop the wherewithal, even the military wherewithal, to pose a direct threat to the United States. So that, that's one. Economically, the, the reason we have worried about this sort of thing in the past, and I think, I think it's valid in thinking about China today, uh, is we were always concerned that if a country uh, that was hostile to us, again, became preeminent in one way or another in a region like East Asia, it would alter that region's terms of trade. Basically, it would turn the economies of the region towards itself and away from the United States in a way that great powers have traditionally done in their spheres of influence. And so we would see a decrement in our own prosperity because we would have less access to the most economically dynamic region of the world. And so that's the economic piece of it. Then I think the, the ideological or the values piece of it is, is perhaps the less un, least understood, but, but it's actually quite important. One of the most worrying things about Chinese conduct, from my perspective, is the way that China has basically tried to export its free speech restrictions to the world. And, and so when the Australian government uh, asked for an impartial international inquiry into the origins of COVID about a year ago, uh, the Chinese not only slapped economic sanctions on the Australians and said, you have to stop, they said, by the way, you need to shut down these newspapers and these think tanks that publish anti-China material. Basically, you, you must neuter your own civil society if you want to maintain good relations with China. This is a part of a larger pattern where when actors in Norway or in Lithuania or whatever the country may be, criticize Chinese foreign policy or Chinese domestic practices in particular, China will use economic sanctions to basically try to, to penalize that sort of speech. This would have a profoundly corrosive impact on the quality of democratic societies worldwide if China were able to do this successfully on a regular basis. And so I think that's the third, but in some ways, the most important challenge that it poses. Yeah. Graham, comments? Well, I, I like what uh, uh, Hal said, uh, but I'd say this is a very, very Michael Morell question. I remember uh, <laughs> you asking questions like this in government. And I've thought hard about this question, even before you pressed it. And I've yet to find a answer that I can read that I find satisfactory. So that's, 
that's an uncomfortable conclusion. But of course, it's very disruptive for the U.S. to have China displacing us as the manufacturing workshop of the world or as the major trading partner of everybody, or as the leader of 5G. I mean, as an American, I hate this. I think we should win the gold medals in every Olympic race. And the idea that there's now this, this uh, rival that actually has overtaken us in many, and it's giving us a run for our money and others, I find it stressful. I think the question, though, is if America's vital national interest, if we go back to the Cold War, and to the mantra that we all said over and over, is to ensure the survival of the U.S. as a free nation with our fundamental institutions and values intact, then is the China we're seeing with its current ambitions in the foreseeable future a serious threat to that? I think the answer is not clear. So Lee Kuan Yew imagined that it might be possible for the U.S. and China to, quote, share the Pacific in the 21st century. Well, what would be the terms of that sharing? So when I think about it, I think, well, okay, if China became as predominant in Western Asia as the U.S. is in our hemisphere or was in the 20th century in the Western hemisphere, well, so what? Okay, so how does this likely impact uh, the terms of the economic development and trade? How severe would would the tilt in the balance that Hal talked about be? I would think then secondly, well, what would happen to the Asian balance of power uh, between China, Japan, India, Australia, South Korea? Would this end up being a stable or unstable? And if unstable war, and if so, how would it impact us? What would happen to the nuclear order if U.S. were withdrawing, in effect, from uh, west of the, uh, you know, Hawaii or something? Uh, does Japan become a nuclear weapon state? I think probably, or South Korea, probably. And then, well, we thought the world would come to an end when India and Pakistan became nuclear weapon states. It didn't. But nonetheless, if you imagine some version. So I, I have more questions here than answers. And I think that I haven't seen anybody write down for debate as a clear account of why this impacts American vital national interests. Um, so I I actually agree with Graham here and might sort of uh, disagree with Hal a little bit in the sense that I agree with Hal that um, China and the United States were trying to pose this threat to the United States in terms of economic competition, human rights issues, um, as well as um, U.S. hegemony or status in the Asia Pacific. Uh, but at the same time, I think the threats are not as uh, significant as um, uh, some of the, the media sort of made it out to be um, first because um, I don't think that China poses a significant ideological threat to the United States in the sense that at least um, studies have shown, especially by China scholars, Jessica Weiss, for example, that China has not intended to export authoritarian models uh, to or across the world, even though domestically China is an authoritarian and repressive state. And um, China is not a communist country either, if we're really talking about communism as an ideology. And um, I think it's more of a, a single party authoritarian state um, that um, wants to develop its economy. So Yashin Huang, for example, at MIT, uh, really uh, coins China's development model as uh, a capitalism with Chinese characteristics. So I don't think there is too much of an ideological threat or component uh, here. And um, 
despite secondly despite that there is a there is economic competition between china and the united states there's also i would say a high degree of economic interdependence that china benefits from in other words if china wants to develop its economy continuously in the future um, I, i don't think it can survive without the supply and production chain so even if we're talking about huawei and huawei's development Huawei still needs um, taiwan south korea for example for critical parts of this component especially the semiconductor industry, for example. Um, and I don't think that um, China can really survive or develop its economy without the sort of supply and production chain uh, globally, uh, which the United States and its allies in the region are a part of. I think that sort of acts as a restraining factor uh, and reduces the, 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 the level of threat that uh, China poses to um, the United States at the um, economic level. This is the first disagreement we've had, which is, which is fantastic. Um, I have to tell you that that I asked the question because I'm intellectually sort of where Graham is. I, I, I really have a hard time answering the question and I haven't seen anybody provide an answer that's satisfactory to me, but I have to say that Hal's answer was compelling. So with this first disagreement, I'm going to give Hal the last word on this. So let me continue the theme of disagreement and pick up on, on the point about ideological challenges. And, and with all respect to you know scholars who've written on this issue and come out with a different place, I, I think it's just manifestly evident that while China may not be sort of a messianic communist regime, and I don't know any serious commentators who make that argument, many of the things it does have the effect of strengthening autocratic regimes in the world. And so when China runs interference at the United Nations for countries that are committing human rights abuses uh, at home, when it exports surveillance equipment to uh, autocratic regimes in Southeast Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America or a variety of, of other places, uh, when, it, it can, when it basically tries to uh, establish the norm that what a country does to its own citizens is none of the business of the rest of the world, that, that is something that has a direct tangible impact on the balance of democracy and authoritarianism worldwide. We, we can debate what the causes of that behavior are, whether the Con- Chinese Communist Party just thinks that um, selling uh, you know, smart city uh, technology to uh, kleptocrats is good business or whether it thinks that there is an ideological or a geopolitical component to it. But what's really important is that China's actions have this impact on the international stage. And we, we can argue about how much of a direct threat that poses to America. I will I'll simply say that it has been a guiding principle of American statecraft dating back to World War I, if not before, that American democracy and American security will be in a better place in a world where democracy is not universal, but is relatively strong relative to ideological competitors. And so if you, if you buy that argument, then there is some degree of challenge that Chinese behavior poses in this ideological realm as well. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard... We think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, so our fourth question, which is not about China. It's about the United States' response to everything we've just talked about. Does the United States have a strategy for dealing with China's ambitions in the world? If so, what is it? What do you think of it as a strategy? If we don't, why don't we have one? Is our approach to China driven more by politics than by our own domestic politics, rather than by a rigorous assessment of our national interests? How do you think about how the U.S. is coming at this? Ketian. So, so obviously, I'm not a, an actual expert on um, U.S. foreign policy or grand strategy, but I'll just pretend to be one um, here. Um, and I think the, um, the, the United States has been practicing for a long time a combination of engagement and um, uh, containment, or especially through engagement through economic realm and more so containment in, for example, the, um, at the military realm. I think the strategy itself, at least from my perspective, does not have an issue per se, but sometimes it's really more of the implementation of the strategy and, and the domestic politics behind the implementation of the strategy that can make um, the signals being sent to China being uh, uh, ambiguous. What I mean by that is that at times domestic politics uh, in the U.S. Um, and I would say in China as well made it difficult for uh, I think both sides to um, be honest and transparent about their intentions and um, uh, it, it sometimes gets in the way of direct channels of communication or the further institutionalizations of um, direct talks, et cetera. I think the more recent Xi Biden, for example, meeting is kind of a good indicator of the, the high levels of direct uh, direct channels of communication. But um, it's hard to see where this might go um, based off of the current sort of political climate here in uh, D.C. as well as in uh, Beijing, which sometimes makes it much more difficult to set clear uh, red lines as well as to send reassurance signals to avoid, say, conflicts or escalation. And the other issue I want to point out would be sort of, I think, a long existing gap between academia and uh, the policy community, especially with the policy community not sometimes relying on the academia, especially regional experts. I think the Biden administration is doing a much better job now, but I think there are still a lot of a gap in this regard, which might reduce our understanding about, uh, for example, the peer competitor that is um, uh, China. I think, no, we don't have a strategy. I think mainly what's happening is a, a kind of a rolling wake up to the realities of the China challenge. This became more intense under the Trump administration, which I think had more of an attitude than a strategy, had some slogans about compete and confront, but not necessarily to what end or how. And I think the Biden administration, at least so far, is being dragged around by the politics in which uh, the fever about China is increasingly rising on a bipartisan basis in the Washington crowd, both in the, across the political spectrum and in lots of the blob, uh, as it's been trying to formulate uh, a strategy for dealing with China. I think so far, it's beginning to recognize the challenge. And then Biden would say, the strategy consists of three elements. First, the home front first. So unless you can rebuild 
American confidence. You can overcome what, as he likes to say, Lincoln's line about a house divided against itself can't stand unless we can reunify the country. And unless we can restore our competitiveness, then we lose. Secondly, to rebuild relationships with allies, because recognizing that the fundamental tectonics of power have been shifting dramatically as China has risen. I've just compared it with a so-called seesaw of power. Unless we get some more allies with weight on our side of the seesaw, we'll have both feet off the ground. And then uh, finally, uh, I think what they expect is that if one create enough of a level playing field or a correlation of forces that required China to compete fairly, uh, that over time in a longer run, competition. They believe, and I believe, that a liberty-based democracy will more successfully deliver what citizens want than a party-led autocracy. So you would, the longer-term picture of this would be a competition between the U.S. and China with guardrails on a relatively level playing field, ensured by a correlation of forces or balance of power that meant that China would have to essentially play by the rules. Whether they're going to get there with a strategy, particularly since the country is, we don't need to explain to this group, so deeply divided and politics is so deeply divided. And in this area, they've been following the politics more than the strategy. Yeah. Uh, I'm afraid we're back to a love fest in the sense that I think that uh, Graham and Ketchum described it quite nicely. I think Trump had a theme of competition, which was an overdue corrective, but had wildly inconsistent policies on everything from did the president want to treat China as a strategic competitor or did he just want a really good trade deal with China that would actually deepen American economic uh, integration with Beijing, to questions of human rights, to the issue of, you know, we were going to start this fight with China, but at the same time, we were going to uh, start fights with many of our democratic allies as well. I think what the Biden administration has tried to do is basically adopt the frame of competition while pursuing it in what they would see as sort of a more sophisticated, more multilateral way, sort of rounding up the posse of, of allies and partners, as Graham might have put it, to bring greater leverage to bear and dealing with China. I think that in many ways, what the Biden administration describes its strategy as being makes a lot of sense. That said, I think there are still some pretty big question marks that, that are sufficient that we would not say the administration has a fully fleshed out strategy. There, there is nothing resembling an economic component of the strategy, particularly when it comes to trade and making the United States a, a factor in the trade relations of the Asia-Pacific uh, in this century. There really hasn't been a whole lot of clarity with respect to what this strategy is ultimately meant to produce or achieve. Is it meant to produce some sort of stable coexistence between the United States and China? Is it meant to produce some, some grand bargain? Is it meant to produce something else? I think that question has yet to be answered. And I think we're also sort of struggling to answer the question, on what timeline do we think the China challenge will become most severe? I think everybody assumes this is going to get worse before it gets better. But are we thinking about this as a 2025 problem when we might have to face a Taiwan crisis that forces the US president to make some really tough decisions about the use of force? Is it a 2035 problem, a 2045 problem? That has huge implications for the military investments you make, and just generally how you think about your China strategy. Which is a great transition to the last question, which is where does all this leave us, right? What does the future look like? Is it a new Cold War? Is there a real risk of a hot war? Is the future going to look like something else? How do you all think about that? How? let's start with you. 
So I think it's not the Cold War, but it is a Cold War. And, and so obviously the, the differences between the U.S.-Soviet contest and the U.S.-China competition are, are significant. And I don't think they require a lot of elaboration economically, geographically, ideologically. The relationship is just different than it was during the, the Cold War. And I think that you know, sophisticated observers understand that. That said, I think that the, the U.S.-China competition is, is one of a number of great power competitions going back hundreds or even thousands of years. Uh, it is going to be a contest that involves all forms of national power. It is going to be conducted under the shadow of military power and under the threat, or at least the danger of war in certain scenarios. And I, I think that qualifies as, as a Cold War, if not the Cold War. But what I really worry about is not the Cold War scenario. I think that's actually kind of the best case scenario at, at the moment. It's the hot war scenario. Uh, and, and the tensions have obviously ratcheted up considerably in the Taiwan Strait over the past uh, couple of years. You had senior U.S. military officials say that they think China could try to forcibly unify with Taiwan by 2025 or 2027, depending on who is doing the talking. There are a variety of other scenarios that a co-author, Mike Beckley, and I described in a recent piece uh, about how you could plausibly get conflict in the South China Sea or the East China Sea, or even in places like along the, the Himalayan border with, with India. Uh, and so I think what we have to remember is that, you know, at the beginning of the Cold War, nobody made a principled decision that this was going to be a Cold War for the next 45 years and both sides would abstain from using force against each other. That was something that worked itself out through a pattern of deterrence and crisis and, and hard work. And I think we should assume that to keep the U.S.-China competition cold, it's going to require all of that again, in addition to some of the hard diplomatic work of, of trying to ease tensions where it's possible and where that's consistent with American interests. Graham? Well, I uh, think I agree. Uh, I thought the piece that Hal and uh, Gaddis wrote uh, reminding us that this is not the Cold War, and actually I argue a lot with people about this, that the analogy, since people capture the Cold War, misleads more than it clarifies. On the other hand, as they say in the piece, if all we mean by Cold War is not hot, but a protracted conflict, then of course there's many Cold Wars going on at the same time. Do we have a quote Cold War with Iran or Cold War with North Korea? I think that if we're just talking about a protracted conflict, will this be a protracted conflict on all dimensions? And we hope not the dimension of hot, which would be bombs and bullets with uniformed combatants. I think that'll be the challenge. I think that's the problem. Now, what then could it be? I think the picture of a long-term competition in which a liberty-based democracy seeks to show that it can work better for people and for what human beings want than a party-led autocracy it is a race I'm perfectly happy to run. If we manage that for another 30 or 40 years, I think that would be a good outcome. Katia, you get the last word here. I think on my sort of term, the, the, the future is more of a either competition or a cold peace as opposed to more of a cold war because they more on the optimistic side in the sense that there are, I think, restraining factors that um, have reduced the, the, the potential for a conflict. Of course, Taiwan is a scenario that is probably the most important a scenario which the United States and China might be directed into a, a conflict. But I think barring that, there are a lot of other uh, factors that can uh, uh, reduce the potential of uh, conflict. And, and the first one is that I think there are a lot of uh, common interests that the United States and China share, despite the many conflictual and probably irreconcilable uh, 
uh, conflicts of interest right, regarding sovereignty, where, uh, freedom, human rights, et cetera. But if we're talking about climate change or non-traditional uh, security and themes, which she and Biden actually talked about in their virtual meeting last Monday, and I think that there is a, a ground for cooperation between the two sides. And secondly, I think even on the economic front, um, and China and the United States, uh, I think it's really difficult for China to thrive without the United States or the supply and production chain. So I think the, um, even in the economic realm, there are things that the United States can do to, um, I would say, restrain China. And there are studies done, I think, by scholars that sort of um, uh, characterize the U.S. leverage as weaponized interdependence. That is, the United States can use financial leverage over China uh, to uh, even to potentially uh, coerce China in uh, national security aspects. Um, and I think finally, although we, we know or observe a lot of um, coercive behavior that China has been, I think, engaging in the past, say, three decades or so, but I wanted to uh, sort of scale it back in the sense that China is a cautious bully and it has always been making a Goldilocks kind of choice in the sense that because it is concerned about military escalation into a conflict with the United States, it tends to use coercion that is a little bit more gray zone or has a little bit more plausible deniability. Um, and because of this Goldilocks choice, it might have a, a, a an effect of reducing the potential for a major escalation. I don't think China intentionally is out there to start uh, a conflict. I think it's really important to remember that China is an authoritarian state. And because of that, it has a lot of internal and domestic issues that it has to care about. I think that really takes up a lot of the attention of the Chinese Communist Party. So uh, I, I think at the end of the day, China's ambition might be grand, but its resources are finite. Uh, I think its sanctionist capability might not be as large as I think some of us might believe it to be. That was our discussion on China. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Palantir Technologies, foundational software of tomorrow, delivered today. The show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.